So we are making our way carefully through Romans, and we'll continue to do that today. In today's New Testament lesson, Paul continues to address the question, what is the future of the nation of Israel? Will they have a continuing role as God's chosen people and a continuing location in the heart of God? Now, this is really about Israel. This whole discussion is about ethnic, national Israel, but it is also about us because we can't help but wonder about the personality of God, his character. Does he keep his promises? Is that love a lasting love no matter what we do? Will we have a future and a continuing location in the heart of God? So while we do need to direct our attention towards Israel and what God is doing, has done, is doing, and will do with them vis-a-vis his whole plan of salvation, I also invite you to feel free to listen to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit speaks to you and brings you words of encouragement and direction. So I'm going to give a little synopsis and I'll read the verses and then I'll, you know, attempt to expound them with you. But these three verses in chapter 11, 25, 26, and 27 comprise the center point of Paul's argument about God's plan for ethnic Israel as his chosen people. Israel was chosen as a nation to represent God to the world. But failing to recognize Jesus as the one sent from God, their mission came to a standstill, more or less, for the most part. At that point, they experienced a partial and temporary hardening so that the other nations could come into God's family by faith in Christ. And you can pick it up if you want to. It's okay. Um, So Jesus, the Son of God, was the perfect representative for the tribe of Israel obviously, to fulfill the covenant, which he did, as both obedient son and sacrifice. God created salvation by his own hand, as he always said that he would. So ethnic Israel as God's chosen people provided a cradle and a people for Jesus to be born into the shoot of Jesse, as he, as fully God, took on flesh and became both fully God and fully human. So then... In the church, as it began to get going, there was a conundrum. Why didn't the Jews accept him? If salvation is by grace alone, why didn't God extend it to them? All day long I have held up my hands to an obstinate and stiff-necked people, God had said. But how could this happen? Did God's plan fail? Did God have to abandon his beloved forever? Well, certainly not, is what we hear. Certainly not. This is the mystery that Paul proclaims, which God has made known to him through the words of the prophets. It was the plan all along to rouse Israel to jealousy through the Gentile believers, to make time and space for all nations to come in, and then as promised to remove the partial hardening from Israel as a nation and allow an influx of the elect up to the fullness of the Jews who must also come into God's family, not by law, Not by the covenants, not by the promises, but through faith alone, by grace alone. So the blessing is made greater, because both Jew and Gentile are saved by grace alone. Such is the mystery of God's hidden blessing and changeless love. There, I've kind of laid it out 
for a few weeks to come. So hear now the word of God. Romans eleven twenty five through 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So what would life on earth be like if there was no such thing as a promise? Would there be hope? Could there be trust? Would there be a sense of the future, or would life really be day to day and moment to moment? Promises, basically, form the underlying structure of a community and a society and every social contract. What if in the natural world, all communities of plants and animals knew nothing of promises, realized or unrealized, no predictability, no patterns of God-given instinct, no cross-linking or interdependence? What would happen if all of nature were to simply abandon its myriad unspoken agreements? Aren't these hidden but powerful processes and sequences also linked to the nature of how God created the universe? The interplay of order and mystery and communion, that there are elements we can and must rely upon because we were designed that way in God's image. Promises. Do we really need them, one way or another, to survive? Curious to know what the rest of the world was thinking about this, I asked the Internet. And it was interesting, the categories of questions and answers that I found. For example, the request for a simple definition. What is a promise? Answer. A promise is a declaration or a commitment by someone to do or not do something It could also mean a capacity for good that is to be realized in the near future, as in that quarterback shows promise. Hopefully we'll we'll see more of that in Philadelphia. (laughs) A basic operating principle of civil, canon, and international law is the maxim pacta sunt servanda, which is Latin for agreements must be kept. So not surprisingly, the second internet question I encountered was, is it okay to break a promise? A philosophical question, and how now contextual ethics begin to appear. The answer was, only if the harm caused by breaking the promise would be less than the harm caused by keeping it, is it okay to break a promise? But I say, if a promise is a relational strategium, Wouldn't both parties need to be able to debate the relative harm or not harm caused either by its making or its breaking? One more inquiry. Why should a promise be kept? The answer. When promises are broken or people are misled, the bonds of trust are breached. Broken promises imply that the offenders either didn't think before making the promise or they don't care that they've let you down. They're also implying that their needs are more important than yours, 
a promise is a promise. What if God made us no promises? No promise to Adam and Eve to someday reconcile the relationships they had ruined. None to Noah to keep the world working until that could happen. No promise to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob that there would be a nation to carry God's presence forward until the deliverer could come and free us from sin. No promise to King David of the one who would build an eternal house for God's name. Or what if God's promises were unreliable and couldn't be trusted, or relative, or contextual, or expiring after a certain amount of time and insult? Where then could we stand, and upon what ground? There is definitely a movement out there in our times for enlightened people to rid ourselves of the constraints of promise-keeping or even promise-making. The idea is this, and I'm going to quote from a blog called Just Leave and Live, that if there are no promises, there's nothing to break. If there are no plans, there are also no expectations. If there are no expectations, there can't be any disappointment. If there are no labels, there's no concept of a breakup, no such concept of cheating either. So in theory, no one can get hurt in this model, regardless of what happens. Now, I just want to put a little personal note in here that when Josh and Rosie got engaged, Rosie gave Josh a medallion that I think is perfect. (laughs) Do you mind if I say this? Sure. (laughs) If you ever stop loving me, may you be torn apart and devoured by wild beasts. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Have you heard about that other way, that alternative reality of no need for promises better without them? A pop song called Promises hit the top of the charts in the UK last August. Some of the words go like this. Are you drunk enough not to judge what I'm doing? Are you high enough to excuse that I'm ruined? I make no promises. I can't do golden rings, but I'll give you everything tonight. So come get your everything tonight. Hmm. Precarious. Precarious. What if our life on this earth, life designed by God to be lived in God's image and likeness, was like that? Capricious, momentary, self-centered, focused solely on the present, and made to be quick release, detachable. Can't promise anything. I'm just not reliable. You'll be better off alone. What if God had said to Adam in the garden, it is good for man to be alone. I'm not going to make out of his flesh any mate perfectly matched to live face to face as helpers together. But that could never have happened because the nature of God himself is relational and the nature of that relation is love. So hidden blessing and changeless love, that's what Paul is talking about here in the center of Romans 11. This little portion, Romans 11, 25 through 27, has been called one of the greatest prophetic utterances in the New Testament, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul. The question he has placed before us is whether or not there continues to be a future for the tribe of Israel, as promised, the Jews, in God's redemptive plan, will God's promise hold true 
to love them with an everlasting love, to return for them, to stand by them, to cleanse them of sin and graft these natural branches back into the olive tree, as we heard last week. Because it did not seem like much grace from God for this ingathering was taking place. Placing it in history, the temple at Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed by Rome. Also, Jesus had predicted it to his disciples. But Jewish cultic religion was continuing on with sacrifices and prayers and the torn curtain of the Holy of Holies apparently put back in its place, even in the face of the crucified and risen Lord. Gentiles were coming into the fellowship believers without even keeping the law. Who was God's legitimate family now, even within the church? This is the great conundrum that Paul addresses with the Christians in Rome. Why are there not more Jews in this congregation? They of all nations should be represented here. Why don't we see it? Why the enmity between the chosen tribe and their risen Lord? How can so many from outside the covenant have come to faith when they were once cut off? And how can these Gentiles, the non-law-keeping, uncircumcised, Roman polytheist Gentiles, have so freely received the grace and the love of God through this Jesus of Nazareth of the house of David? Does God love them more? Are they the new chosen people? Is the church the new Israel? What is God doing? Can we make it out? And you know, these are questions that many people are still asking today. Many people. This is not in any way settled in the minds of the entire church. These mysteries were hidden by God for reasons known to God, Paul explains. But now God has revealed something not seen before through the words of the prophets, a hidden blessing, a changeless love. And this is what Paul begins to proclaim. Lest you be wise in your own sight, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. Let me paraphrase this. Excuse me. I'm warning you not to be conceited, friends. You need to be aware that also, though some of our Jewish brothers and sisters have been able to come to faith, obviously, because I, Paul, am a Jew, still the nation as a whole has experienced some closing of their eyes and ears, some hardening of their hearts towards God. And this will continue until the fullness From all nations has come in through Christ, but only until. This narrowed access for Israel is not terminal, and it's not the end of the story. There will be a limit to the Gentiles at some point, and this is how all Israel will be saved. As the prophets have said, the deliverer will come from Zion. Jesus will come to them at a time in which the Gentiles are full, and he will take away their sin. Those words are pretty cryptic. The ideas are mysterious. The words are obscure, and the prophecies Paul quotes have got to be abbreviations, like code words that Paul knew would serve as shortcuts for some pretty spectacular promises that had been given to Israel, but not fulfilled. God had spoken through the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. The Spirit brought it to Paul's attention that these promises were still in the works, although they were hidden. 
So we'll look at awareness and mystery and fullness and then look more deeply into the prophecies and we'll consider some applications to our life together as a church in this time and place. So Paul begins that he does not want his readers to be unaware. If that sounds like an awkward construction, it is. This double negative is there to emphasize that it is only, not only is it preferable to be aware, but there's some potential danger in not being aware. So listen up. I do not want you to be unaware because you might get an attitude. Never mind that they already had an attitude. You know how Paul just kind of brings those singers right in there. Paul is warning his readers to drop the arrogant attitude that they apparently had developed to the Christian Jews who were different from them. There's never any place for that kind of attitude in the churches there. Jesus prays that all of us may be one because in Christ we are all children of God through faith and we have covered ourselves with Christ and there is no difference between us in him, says Galatians 3. In kind of an application aside, I think we, we all get along pretty well in this church. If not, most of you have kept it well hidden from me. So maybe we're all too much the same. Is that what that says? And what we need to do is start praying in more people who are different from us so that the Lord can make us one to his glory and praise. Or we can go deeper now with each other. The word unaware may seem pejorative, but it literally translates to an absence of knowledge. Absence of knowledge. That's all. Differences can emerge and become apparent as we get closer. But with greater knowledge of one another, we can also experience the grace of Christ in laying down anxiety over differences, in seeing each other as we are clothed in Christ to the praise of his glory. Amen? We can go deeper. Let's talk about mystery. The Bible is full of it. God's ways are to us replete with mystery. Paul calls himself a steward of the mysteries of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, he cries. Wonderfully inscrutable, Paul means. He has learned to trust in God's faithfulness and God's power to accomplish his good and loving plan even when we don't know what God is doing, even when it's taking years of waiting, hoping, praying, and trying, and the blessing is still hidden. Most often, the secret things of God toward his children are blessings whose time has not yet come. Blessings whose time has not yet come. How often did the disciples hear Jesus say, my time has not yet come? In the fullness of time is God's way with time. Until then, it may be mystery. The idea of fullness is important, meaning that something is completely complete, fully saturated, up to the limit. Now, it's a little troubling, isn't it, to hear that there will be a time of fullness for the Gentiles. There will come a time of fullness for the Gentiles. How much more time is there, we have to wonder. Will it be long enough for us? Long enough to see our children's children come into the kingdom of God and to know that there will be a living eternity for them. From the Jewish perspective, the question would be, how much longer, O Lord, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes? We're waiting. We have to trust that God is good, 
As the Apostle Peter said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some reckon slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Thank you, Lord. Jesus spoke of the times of the Gentiles with his disciples. Every evening they would exit the city and sit up in the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. When they were down in the temple, uh, at the temple area in Jerusalem, some of the disciples had been admiring the enormous beveled stone blocks that made up the temple walls. Huge, perfect, gorgeous, shining like gold in the sun. Jesus had said, the time will come when not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Of course, they asked him, when will this happen? And what will be the signs? Jesus spoke of revolutions and wars and said that these things must happen, but the end would not come right away. And then he said this, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its destruction is near. Then let those in Judea flee to the mountains and let those in the city get out, for this is the time of punishment. This people will be taken as prisoners to all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus said that the current generation would see these things come to pass. You know, a generation was understood to be about 40 years. Jesus was about 33 at the time in the year 30. In 70 AD... Rome marched into Jerusalem and completely demolished Jerusalem and knocked down and burned every stone, just as Jesus had said. The contemporary Jewish historian Josephus wrote that 1.1 million Jews who ran into the walled city for protection perished in the fight. The followers of Jesus, who remembered what he had said, ran to the hills and were safe. And Jerusalem has been trampled on by the nations Ever since. Now, in 1967, when Israeli soldiers recaptured a portion of Jerusalem, some ask, does this mean that in some way the fullness of the Gentiles is drawing closer? Like an incoming tide, there have been waves of Jewish evangelism, and as our brother Paul Cruz told us last week when he was here with Chosen People Ministries, in the past 50 years there have been more Jewish people coming to the Messiah than in any other time in church history. So it's worth pondering, what does all this mean in God's timing? Should we not be calling all the nations now to jump into the waves of God's mercy if the tide is coming in? Let's talk about prophecies. The prophecies that Paul quotes. The first quotation is from Isaiah 59, 20 to 21. In the translation of the Septuagint, which was the text used in the early centuries A.D., so if you look that scripture up in your Bible, it won't look exactly the same, but as Paul writes it, it is exactly the same. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The full text reads like this, And the deliverer shall come for Zion's sake and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, and this shall be my covenant with them, said the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and the words which I have put in your mouth, shall never depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your children, or your children's children, from this time forth, and forevermore, says the Lord. 
That's a long time. These words are followed in Isaiah by a very familiar verse, and here the context is important. After 59, Isaiah 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is rising upon you. Then, throughout that chapter, come many, many promises about things that are to take place on earth, geopolitically, and their blessings, which have not yet been fulfilled for national Israel. These times are still to come. And finally, this word, I am the Lord, in its time, in its time, I will do this swiftly. You've heard me say it before, the already and the not yet. We are between the times, awaiting the fullness, working while we have the light. As long as it is today, scripture says, harden not your heart. Because then comes Isaiah 61, which Jesus used to announce his ministry in the synagogue in Capernaum. For those who had ears to hear, he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he taught them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In the synagogue in Capernaum that day, they didn't hear. But they will, says the Lord. What Paul writes in Romans 11, 25-27 is designed to open up our understanding when we really hear it. It's breathtaking. Take out your pew Bible, please, and turn with me to Jeremiah 31, starting at 31. It's on page 784. Concerning God's continuing relationship with Israel. This would be Paul's second source. And as you read through, as we read through, listen for the time stamps. These are places which nail down that these are prophesied historical events and not solely spiritual events. And I think that's very important to note the difference between what is metaphorical, what is spiritual, and what is both, what is actually an historical prophecy. So Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now he's speaking of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law. This new covenant that the Lord declares he will make cannot be the Mosaic covenant or any new version of the Mosaic covenant. Why? Because Jesus, standing in for Israel as David's heir, and standing in for Adam as the son of man, and standing as God, has already fulfilled that covenant. Done. It has reached its fullness. But the new covenant, sealed in his blood, is exactly the promise to make of us a new creation, new birth, new spirit, and new life. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, time stamp, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. 
This is what the Lord said, he who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees of the sun and the moon and the stars and the waves, only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. That is very definitive. This God is not going anywhere, whether we can see it right now or not. If you were a Christian in the first century in Rome, you would need to know that you could put your trust in this God of the Jews and of his son Jesus. You bet your life. And you had better know that all who are in Christ Jesus need to stick together, need to be one body without divisions and disputations and without disturbing the peace of Christ or the peace of Rome. There had already been a lot of trouble along those lines. And man, the church just continues to roll that one out, don't we? And so God uncovers the mystery for Paul. Paul needs the community to understand it well. So how amazed Paul must have been when God revealed to him that far from seeing a meager Jewish presence among the elect as a curse, it actually represented a great blessing for both Jew and Gentile. How so? Around three years later, while imprisoned in Rome, Paul wrote some words to the church at Ephesus that shed light on this question. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, who himself became our peace between the law and grace, And became that fullness of both righteousness and grace. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do you see? Most of the Jews and even the Jewish Christians. And some of the Gentile converts to Jewish Christianity were stuck in the law. But salvation is by grace alone. That makes us all the same before God, all sola, depending on him only. They had the law, the prophets, and the promises. It might have seemed like they were halfway there, but they were stuck in these things. The Gentiles were stuck outside of them with no hope, no covenant, no promises. Listen to this. As Jesus rode into the holy city on the day we call Palm Sunday, there was every reason because of prophecy that his own people would have recognized him as their messianic king. If God had allowed it, it could not have been more obvious. But as Jesus rode in, he mourned over them, and he said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. But you see, the temple had to be destroyed because Jesus had already destroyed and rebuilt it in his own body. The nation had to be dispersed because it would need to be called together again under the new covenant of grace alone, by faith alone. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom 
and knowledge of God. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice so much in the mystery of your changeless love and your redeeming purposes. We can't even imagine from our own personal experiences how to maintain faithfulness to a promise the way you do, by your own virtue and choice, your own mighty saving power, your irresistible grace. Our hearts are overwhelmed when we catch a glimpse of it, Lord. We are thankful that you've placed us in between heaven and earth, that we might put our lives to the task of extending your welcome and your truth and your great good news to those you have given us to know and to love. So break us out beyond our borders, Lord, always beyond our comfort zone, because you are beyond, Jesus, but not running ahead of you, not lagging behind, but let us remain engrafted into you and your words written on our hearts as we go forward in faith. In your name, Christ, we pray. Amen.